Hello and welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibone, known to my friends as Marv. This time I'm joined by a man who is an acclaimed writer, a journalist, critic and a podcaster. My guest has worked for the High Fidelity and Keynote magazines, as well as the New York Times and the New York Observer. He is also one of three main hosts on the Beatles-related podcast, Things We Said Today, and has written books that include Misha Elman and the Romantic Style, Classical Music, A Critic's Guide to the 100 Most Important Recordings. I don't know how you could have picked just 100. And a recent book that I absolutely love, The McCartney Legacy, which he co-wrote with Adrian Sinclair. My guest is a man who somehow finds the time to do all of these things, Mr. Alan Cozen. Alan, thank you for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. So you passed your bachelor's degrees in music and journalism from Syracuse University in 1976. And then was it a slow build from there then to, to the, to the career in, in, you know, work in journalism and critic and becoming a writer? Um, It actually wasn't that slow. It probably felt slow at the time. Um, uh, When I was still at Syracuse, I was writing for basically what is the equivalent of the village voice up there called the Syracuse New Times. And they, there was also an Ithaca New Times and a Buffalo New Times. So some of my stuff turned up in those places too. Some of my stuff turned up only in those places. You know, I'd go to, go to uh, one of those other cities and, and review a concert or something. Um, and uh, so by the time I got out of school, I had a portfolio of, of articles and reviews and just started uh, freelancing for the Times initially and, and for a lot of other places. And, uh, you know, the Times published its first piece of mine in 1977. So that was about a year after I graduated. And um, it, that was pretty steady. Uh and opened a lot of other doors because once you are writing pretty regularly for the times, it's easy to get other people to take your stuff. So, uh, and then I eventually went on staff at the times and uh, was there till 2014 when I retired and moved up to Maine. Um, But I still do some things for them and the wall street journal and uh, Washington post and, and other things in between chapters of these books (laughs) So when you were doing the uh, the degrees in music and journalism, was your intention to actually go into being a music journalist or were you just edging your bets and going to do the music and the journalism and see which one stuck? Um, well, it was like this. I mean, I wanted to go to school and get a music degree and my parents wanted me to become a lawyer okay. and felt that a journalism degree would be an easier thing to get into law school with than a music degree. So I and and I I guess they felt I'm not sure on what basis, but they felt I was a, a reasonably good writer. So uh, I went to journalism school as well and try to put together a dual degree which they didn't have so mm-hmm. i ended up with a ridiculous amount of credit hours i actually could have a master's in one of them um but 
they had to be simultaneous because my offer to get the music bachelor's degree and then get uh, a master's in journalism, uh, my parents felt that I probably wouldn't follow through with the journalism degree, and they, they were probably right. Um, so I guess I thought uh, that if I couldn't do anything in music, which it turns out I never really tried much to do once I got out, uh, that I could do music journalism. And uh, since I and since I was already doing it when I was in school, it just seemed a natural thing to continue once I got out rather than trying to give concerts and compose. I mean, one of the things you could see the second you get out of school is that composers are not very well treated and not very well paid. And you end up just being an academic and also writing, you know, in your uh, spare time or something, you know, uh, I didn't really want to do, I thought if I could, if I had to write music in my spare time, I might as well do music journalism, which I enjoyed doing as well. And that would be my main career. And the other stuff would be when I had the time. Well, it would certainly help to to mix the two together. If you, your journalism, uh, your main journalistic points would be on on the music world so mm. things like uh, when when you were were looking at uh, classical music pieces for instance which i know that you were very uh very important that was one of your big one of your main uh jobs was to was to look at classical works hence the, the book that i mentioned you know the classical music a critic's guide to the 100 most important recordings i still don't know how you can pick 100 out of so many but we'll leave that, that for just, now that was just the uh the the assignment to write that book was was that that was published by the times actually that book but the theory theory that you learned during the uh during the degree and all of all of those things you, that would be important when you are when you go into looking at classical music and looking into the little bits of what each instrument is playing and how the arrangements are arranged for each individual instrument and then people that don't listen to a lot of classical music might not realize that there are variations therein where different instruments can play different parts it's it's interesting because you can hear like a not an orchestra as such but some alternatives it's a bit like a steve reich piece can be done with so many instruments i mean i i love the piece when he did with the different uh percussion and the different um you know the vibraphones and, and he had that for instance but these parts can be played on different instruments and if you play them on different instruments there's a completely different feel to the music so you're uh, theory knowledge and music knowledge and th and would actually help with your listening and discussing this yeah i mean i guess that was the idea i mean i um these days you can get a degree in various aspects of pop music but in the those days you couldn't it was all classical music and so that's what i studied and at the times i was really a classical music critic um but because I had this little sort of side collecting specialty in the Beatles. Um, at one point, um, the Times pop critic reviewed a video, um, which he took to be a live video. It was a, it was basically around the Beatles, which they put out as Ready Steady Go special edition, which it was never really on Ready Steady Go. But anyway, um, it turns out 
that they recorded the music sort of live in the studio the day before, and then they lip synced to it when they did the film. And there are some places where you could hear Paul singing live against the recorded vocal. The, the reviewer, um, you know, just mentioned that it was a live recording. And uh, I sent him a note saying, you know, it's actually not live. This is what happened and told him what I just told you. And he said, I, you know, I knew there was something wrong with that. With <laughs> it wasn't, you know, absolutely live. But a few months later, the first Beatles CDs came out, and he called me up and said, "You know, why don't you review the CDs? You know, I'll just do a piece announcing that they're coming, and you review it, and you do your whole, you know, mania thing about, you know, mono and stereo mixes, whatever you want to do." And that's when I basically became the Beatles' desk at, at the New York Times, and. That critic, John Perellas, um, actually, after, a few years later, did a talk in a class at the Juilliard School, and he said, the New York Times is the only newspaper in the country that has a dedicated Beatles desk, and it's in the classical music department. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's that's where we are. But, you know, I, I, I did feel that um, that it would be important if I was going to be writing about music to have a music degree, you, you run into an awful lot of people who are just sort of guessing or going by feel or, or whatever it is. Um, although, you know, at the times, uh, most of the other classical critics had studied music at a college level and, uh, you know, some had degrees, some didn't, but um, they had studied it very seriously. And you kind of have to, because especially with classical music, if you make a mistake or say something ridiculous, you will hear about it immediately from the readers. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's just something that's, that's necessary. Although, strangely enough, when I got to the Times, I mean, I'd been writing for the Times for a while. I was never able to get them to even look at my resume. So they didn't care particularly what degrees I had. Um, and it was only when they finally put me on staff that they said, oh, by the way, could we have a resume for our files? So I'd been sending them these resumes all in the beginning of my freelance career that all went, I guess, directly in the trash. And now they needed one <laughs> when I went on staff. So, so I supplied that. But but you know, you know what you're saying about having the two degrees is it. It was very helpful because you know how journalism works. Um, you know from that side of, of the degree, that degree, and you know how music works from that degree. So the the two fit together really naturally. Absolutely. So, what I mean, what sort of obviously impetus that. So from there then, so then in, in 1980, was it 82 when you wrote your, your, the first book on Misha Elman? Um, actually, I wrote a book before that called The Guitar, The yes. Players, The History and the Music, or they might not have been in that order, um, with three other guys. And I wrote the classical chapter and they wrote jazz rock country western or something. Um, so that was first and that was about 1980. Um, then the biography of Misha Elman, and I felt that 
there wasn't probably enough interest in Misha Elman himself as a violinist that I should really do the whole romantic violin style, um, which he was a, a representative of, one of the last representatives of. Um, so I did that in, uh, I guess, yeah, 82, whenever it came out so long ago. Um, and what did you, <laughs> you ask about it? So I was, I was going to ask, so how did you was that something that you'd intended on on doing originally no, was, becoming a writer or was it just something that suddenly came on your plate as oh would you like to have, to have a go at this in in the case of the misha elman book it was that and, and i guess in the guitar book as well um the the uh guy who was putting the book together uh a writer named gene santoro uh who was a a great jazz critic and pop critic and who um died just in this past year and was a a close friend of mine but we got to be friends on that book he he put the book together and he called and uh we had lunch and he asked me if i would do the classical section with misha elman um uh the elman family wanted to commission a bio Yep. And I went and talked to them and I didn't particularly want to be commissioned by the family. I wanted, you know, if I, I was going to write, it would have to be an independent thing. Yep. So I did an outline in a sample chapter and said, okay, now it's, it's up to you guys to hire an agent and sell this. And I think they hired an agent, but they didn't have any luck selling it. So I thought, okay, then that's that. Then they worked out this deal where, well, how about if, you know, we pay you in advance and if we sell the book eventually, then you pay us back the advance and, you know, you work it out with the publisher. So I ended up writing that, that book um, and they never found a publisher, um, but I was having dinner with someone at a publishing house uh, and he said, if, you know, if you got it, it was just a social dinner. It wasn't to, you know, sell any books. And he said, have you, uh, have you done any books? And I said, well, I, you know, I have one about Misha Elman sitting in my closet in a box, you know. And he said, you mind if I look at it? And I gave it to him. And it turned out the the publisher, uh, the, you know, publisher person at the head of the company had had seen Misha Elman play uh, mm. and, and was a fan of his. And so they put the book out. Um, so that was the second one. And uh, I've done eight altogether now, um, one of which I ghosted for someone, basically. It was a, an artist manager, a classical music artist manager. And then um, the New York Times 100 Best Classical Music recordings that was they they had a series of 100 of this 100 of that so there's 100 films 100 opera recordings 100 jazz recordings so i did that one at the end of the book there's a section where you can have like another hundred a list of 100 like also rands um so i have them at the end so it's really 200 in, in that book but even that, as you say, is pretty constricting. It's a huge record world out there and and many more than a hundred that that you would want. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> you, you, you know, really, the 100, uh, 100 most important recordings, classical wise, you would have the same argument with people if they were to say, Oh, what are the ten? Uh, what are the ten greatest albums by Miles Davis? And you ask hundred different people, they will give you a completely. They will give you a different list of that, even. So, yeah, it, it's all 
your own specific opinion, essentially, you've picked those 100 yourself, have you? Or, or is it from a group of uh, critics and then you... No, I I, I I picked them, um, and you know it was a partly you know what I felt really were the hundred pieces that everybody should know, and then within that, which recordings of each of those pieces, and you know, and in in the course of it, you know, each chapter, each entry, um, basically makes the argument for why I'm choosing that recording of like, if it's Beethoven symphonies, like how many hundreds of recordings of Beethoven symphonies, why I'm choosing this one. And probably also mentioned, you know, but I also like this, this, and this one, um, because they're so different, you know, um, even though they're the same piece, but, uh, you know, yeah, that, that was, that was, uh, my choice and there wasn't any editorial interference in it. So that was, was pretty good and uh it was fun to do and since it was the times doing it um commissioning it it kind of um gave me the freedom to say uh you know if i didn't if i wanted to have a light reviewing week is well i've, I've got to work on the book this week and it's your book so you know got to do it so that was that was very handy <laughs> it's a bit like i have a preference towards um I really love uh, pieces by Rachmaninoff where he's actually performed them himself on mm. the recordings because there's a certain emotion that he puts into it because he's the actual creator of the pieces. Mm-hmm. I I mean to to a lot of people they might not feel might not hear it essentially but I can feel a, more of a, an emotion behind the piece when he's played the piece on the piano to a to another pianist playing those pieces sure and there's another interesting thing that happens with composer recordings of their own works um which is that they have no compunction whatsoever about completely reversing their own dynamic markings or anything else so you know the passage in the printed score might say forte and rachmaninoff might play it pianissimo you know maybe maybe that's an exaggeration but uh, you know you run into that a lot and in fact in in the case of Mahler um Mahler always said that his favorite recordings his favorite conductor of his music was was Mengelberg the Dutch conductor um you listen to Mengelberg's recordings I think uh, on the on the fourth symphony um I noted like on the the first page of the symphony, there were something like 30 places where Mengelberg went a different way than than Mahler's own markings. And he was Mahler's favorite conductor. Um, And so, you know, if just some pianist out there were to play Rachmaninoff concertos and decide to do all those same things, you would say, well, you know, what's the point of having the score and all those markings if you're just going to ignore them? And yet Rachmaninoff himself did. So, and you can't really criticize Rachmaninoff um, interpreting his own music, how he wants it to be, you know, even though it may go against the printed score. So you run into a lot of interesting things like that once you start doing comparative listening of different recordings. And and that was sort of the point of that book. Well, people doing versions of song, of uh, classical pieces, we won't even get started on the fact that that, uh, Copeland absolutely loathed uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer doing his material. That's right. Um, 
he when I was at Syracuse, he came up and gave a talk. And uh, someone in the audience, there was a QA with the audience, and someone asked him, what do you think about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's version of Hoedown? And he hesitated for a minute, and he said, well, you know, it's really a terrible thing to hear your music ruined. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> and yet Alberto Ginestera loved what they did with Toccata. Yes. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. Everyone has a different way of looking at, at what's done with their music. I think the latter was a bit more open to interpretation than, than Copeland was. Possibly, yeah. So, um, so eventually you, you also did a fantastic book on the Beatles as well in 1994, was that, or 92? Trying to I remember think, now. Um, I think it came out in '95. I probably wrote it in '94 because um, I remember it coming out around the same time as the anthology, which you know, on one hand, was kind of handy because Beatles were in the news, um, and on the other hand, was not handy because the Beatles were telling their own story. So who needs mine necessarily? But um, but I, I, I enjoyed writing that book. I wrote that book. Uh, in like 19 days, you know, wow. and, and half that time I was sitting there with my guitar at my desk and that book of Beatles scores done by a, a handful of Japanese guys who sort of wrote down, you know, pretty exact versions, you know, with the proper chord fingerings and all that, you know, not just yeah. C, D, E written across the top of the, of the page. Uh, and I sit there and play them. And, you know, once you have it under your hands, it's, it's different than, you know, just listening to it. And, and so I would say, oh, oh, this is great. Let's see what the next one's like, you know, and wasn't getting the writing done, but nevertheless managed to get it done in 19 days. Cause I, you know, I just knew that stuff and loved it. And, and the book was only like 50,000 words. So, um, you know, compared with the McCartney legacy, which I think was about 350,000 words by the time we finished it. Uh, that took a lot longer to do, but, um, yeah, the, the, the Beatles book was for a, a British company called Fiden. Yep. Uh, and it was part of a series of composer biographies, 20th century composers. Um, at the time I was asked to do that, uh, all the other composers in the series were classical composers uh after the beatles one came out and did pretty well i think they decided to do a few more pop and jazz people in the series too um but i i think that's that book is actually still in print uh they redid it a little with a new cover and uh slight updates um not too much. Uh, they're just fixing some errors and things. And they gave it a new name, which was from the cavern to the rooftop. Yep. So it's still out there. Well, nobody can see because this won't go out as a video, but both of us are stuck or are sat in front of our own instruments. I've got some, a, a few of mine at the back of me, you know, the, the fenders are at the back of me. Um, so we are all music. We're both musicians here, and we both love to play Beatles songs. Mm. Uh, Self promotion here. I do the music for the toppermost of the poppermost. So, um, or my versions of Beatles songs, anyway. 
So on to this fabulous book, The McCartney Legacy. Now, I said to you before in chat, before we started recording uh, a day or so ago, the introduction to it, it really jumped out at me where you wrote that introduction about um, the fact that McCartney describes is much like like all of us really. There's an there's an there's how we project ourselves to others outside of or to the mass public outside, and how right. we are in the you know in ourselves behind closed doors, should we say? And McCartney said a few times that when he's in a um, a situation with the media, most of the time that there are times when he's been caught out. Life magazine, for instance, but a lot of the time he will be this other person, essentially, and not the private Paul McCartney. So you, so that I found interesting because you were explaining about the certain stories and anecdotes that he will tell throughout the years, and a lot of people pick up on them, and they'll they'll accuse him of dare we say lying, where you were saying in a sense, is not lying per se. It's actually a performance. And I was saying to you, much like I see a performance over the years of, of Dylan, where Bob Dylan does exactly the same thing, and he has done for many years, where he will come up with a, a version of the truth, which isn't necessarily the truth, but it it creates like a mystery like a, almost a mysticism or a very different, it creates its own performance, essentially. Yeah. You know, Dylan was a lot more extreme yeah. than Paul. Um, you know, in the, in the beginning of his career, he used to go on the radio in New York. And I've got a lot of these interviews uh, in my collection. And and he would talk about how, you know, well, you know, when he was 13, he ran away to the circus and went out to Oklahoma. And didn't, he didn't do any of that. You know, it was absolutely fictional. Um, and, you know, in his case, I, 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 who knows why he was doing it? I'm not sure. Uh, it, you know, it, unlike Paul, it, with, with Paul, sometimes he just tells an ideal, idealized version yeah. of the details. Or in some cases, uh, one, one, for instance, is that story about uh, live and let die. And, and it's actually George Martin's story that Paul has adopted, even though Paul knows it, it's not true, <laughs> which is that um, when the record was finished, George Martin's story is he took it to Jamaica and he played it for the producers. And uh, th they said to him, well, OK, this is a great demo, Paul. Who are we going to uh, George, who are we going to get to do it? You know, and George Martin is saying, well, but this is Paul McCartney. If you don't use this recording, I'm not sure you're going to get the song, you know. And from his point of view, he saved the day and the Paul McCartney recording was used in Live and Let Die. You know, what we found um, in a uni university in uh, Wisconsin has a collection of materials relating to Bond films. And we found the memo of agreement between you know Eon Productions, which did the Bond films, yeah. and MPL, which is Paul's company. And according to that agreement, um, he was hired specifically to write the song, and his recording with wings would be used 
as the title music specifically. But there is also going to be a second scene in the movie where the song was performed in a disco and they wanted it to be by a soul singer or a female singer. According to this memo of agreement, it was supposed to originally be the fifth dimension and Paul had agreed to produce the fifth dimensions recording. So Paul's totally up on this, you know, Um, and Eventually, the fifth dimension had to drop out. They ended up getting uh, a singer named Brenda Arno, who uh, Paul didn't produce, but George Martin did. Um, And anyway, you know, there was never any danger that Paul's song was not going to be used in the title credits. And George Martin may not have known that because he wasn't necessarily privy to the contracts. But Paul was privy to the contracts and he signed them, you know. Um, So he knew, but he adopted George Martin's story because it really is a great story. You got to admit. And there's no reason Paul would have assumed that anybody would ever read the contracts. Why would anybody? So nobody would challenge this. And now, you know, we've come along and and found that it's it's a story like a number of stories that he tells. It's he he told it most recently in his lyrics book, just like that, you know, great demo, who are we gonna get? You know? Um and so, you know, when I talk about a, a performance, I'm thinking of, you know, for for a, a public person like Paul, and particularly a public musician like Paul, his performances are what he does on albums and what he does on stage. But there is a degree to which his public life is a performance, too. Yeah. And so if he wants to tell a story a certain way, um, it's you could say he's lying, but you could also say, no, this is this is part of the performance that Paul McCartney is creating, which is called Paul McCartney, the public person, you know. Um, now, he also would make a distinction between, you know, just looking at himself. You know, there were two of me here. You know, there's me who's me. The person born Paul McCartney grew up, had a family you know, have friends, people who know me, they know me, Paul McCartney. Now you who are out there coming to my concerts and buying my records, you know, him, you know, that version of Paul McCartney, the him version of Paul McCartney, which Paul doesn't necessarily totally see as himself. He knows it's himself, but it's also a projection that he is, you know, willfully projecting. Um, He's not going as far as Dylan saying he ran off and joined the circus, you know, (laughs) but, um, you know, he has his story that he wants to tell. And and in in his case as well, some of it is just also the fact that he has, uh, he's 80 years old. And that is an awful lot of stuff to remember. So when Paul says, you know, when Bloody Sunday happened in Ireland, which caused him to write Give Ireland Back to the Irish, I was in New York. But we know from Denny Sywell's diaries, which he let us have and helped us establish an airtight timeline for this book, we know that he was in London. He was in London listening to the BBC coverage, really upset about it, uh, sat down to write that song very quickly. And and Denny came to visit him that day. And that night, uh, 
they went out to the rainbow to see Mountain at the top of the bill. And the second bill was J- the Jimmy McCulloch band. And of course, right. Jimmy McCulloch turns up in volume two yeah. as Wing's second lead guitarist. So, um, so spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't, is, is Paul lying when he says he was in New York? No, you know, yeah. in that case, I, I think he just doesn't remember, you know, he, he has some visceral memory probably of being in New York, but he may be conflating it with some other time he was in New York, you know, and something happened, but, um, so there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, but I, but I do think that, you know, the him and me thing is something that that he's mentioned periodically. It, it comes up a few times in this book. Um, in one case, when he is with Francie Schwartz before Linda came over uh, and their romance started um, and they went up to Liverpool and he got drunk and he just sort of uh, harangue is too strong a word, but was saying to her, you know, well, you know, you, you look at me and you see him, but I'm not him, I'm me, you know, and, yeah. and she has that in her book. And I, I thought, you know, that's actually kind of interesting seeing as he on a couple of other occasions has brought up this him and me thing too. And he's also talked about being a Gemini, which is, you know, the, the dual, dual kind of uh, um, astrology sign of the Gemini twins. Um, and another British journalist had brought that up to him. And after it was mentioned to him, he began adopting it almost jokingly, you know, well, I have these two sides, but of course I'm a Gemini, you know? So <laughs> he's a complicated man, a, a fascinating, complicated man. He is, but you, you know, you, you take him on a, on a, um, on a, a tangent here with what you've just said that I've always thought, which is that another really good thing about Paul that I've thought over the years is he's almost like a, he's almost like a creative sponge as well at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot like, so when he worked with John, he was learning, they were both learning off each other when mm-hmm. he worked with John, but right. then I see the same again, you know, it, it's almost like history's been a bit poor to to Danny to Danny Lane in a way, oh. as being as being Paul, you know, working with Paul for all those years in a sense. And I actually think that Paul learnt a lot from from Danny as well, and vice versa. Hmm. Uh, so so when they were working on songs over that time, I can see where where Danny's uh, way with his writing would touch on Paul's because there's there's a lot of of what Denny the way that Denny writes that wasn't so obvious pre wings that became a, a huge part of Paul's uh oeuvre from then onwards mm-hmm. yeah I'll have to look uh, more closely for that as we go along because in the first book the only thing of Denny's that Wings Wings recorded was no words, and and that was a collaboration between Paul and Denny. Um, Denny had a couple of his earlier songs in Wings' tour set in 1973, uh, maybe a little in 72 as well. But, um, you know, I I haven't 
really noted that much of an influence of Denny on Paul, but now that you mention it, I'll, I'll have to look. Um, I know that, um, for instance, on um, this will be at the, the very end of volume two, Back to the Egg, when yep. we get there, you know, Denny's song again and again and again, you know, is very McCartney-esque to me. Um, and there may have been something going both ways there. It's It's interesting. Um, there's also a song I, I just was writing about the other day because I'm in there uh, in volume two. I'm in 1974 in Nashville, and Denny did a song called Send Me the Heart, which Lovely they never released, but it ended up on one of his solo albums. Um, and there the deal was Paul wrote Sally G and challenged Denny to come up with a country song too and send me the heart was the response. And it's very different from Sally G, you know, they both used very different sort of country music. Um, I don't want to say cliches, but you know, certain moves that you find in a lot of country songs, Paul uses certain ones, Denny uses certain ones and they're different ones, you know, and they got in pedal steel players and country people from Nashville to, to play it. And, uh, and they all sound very comfortable with it. So, um, you know, Paul, Paul did try to encourage Denny to contribute a lot more than he did. And it, it's kind of interesting because, you know, when Denny came to Paul, he had an album, which became Ah Lane started, yep. but not close to finished. Uh, and he just sort of set that aside and went and joined Wings. And it was a couple of years later, he finally finished it. Um, and in the 19... 19- well, he finished it in 73 and put it out, did interviews about it, all that kind of stuff. And just before his album came out, they did this British tour in 73. And Paul says in several interviews, you know, I really want to get Denny to write more stuff, you know, because Paul wanted it to be a band, you know, he he didn't want it to be just backing people. And he thought that Denny, you know, Denny could write, maybe he can have some input here. And he began encouraging him in interviews and saying, you know, I don't want to force him, but, you know, it would be great if he wrote some songs too. And Denny is, you know, Denny, is sometimes an unfathomable character because here he is, they're about to go record bands on the run. He has one song that's going to be on that. He has just put out an album of material that he had not previously released. And while he's doing interviews for that album, journalists are saying, so are you going to do, uh, you going to write some things for wings? And, and he said, well, you know, I don't really have any material. It's really hard to understand how you could say that while you're sitting there promoting an album that you just finished and just put out, you know, you obviously have material. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Denny's a bit of a mystery, but also a really good writer. When I, um, so when I listen to Mull of Kintyre, for instance, and I look at the lyrics to that, Mm-hmm. I, I look at it almost in a way where, because uh, there's in some of some of Denny's writing, the very very wordy and very poetic in some places, mm-hmm. and it's it's almost like it's almost like 
Paul brought Denny in on a song that Paul had brought. This is my assumption. And then Denny sort of like helped him to clean up a little bit, a few bits where Paul hadn't quite got what was needed or he'd got bits that were missing. And hmm. uh, essentially, Denny was sort of an editor. And that's how I sort of see that as an outsider. I'm not sure whether that's how it was or not. Yeah, I mean, he did that with, I think he might have done a little bit of that on I Lie Around. And, um, but on No Words, actually, it had started as Denny's song and Denny hadn't finished it. And Paul finished it off for him um, or with him. Or or Paul had, you know, this is uh, one of Paul's big moves is going to a completely other song and pirating it in. So yep. he had something that he hadn't finished that he thought would fit with Denny's song, and they melded that together. I mean, it's basically, um, you might call it the a day in the life move. Yes. Yep. You know? And Paul does that an awful lot in this first book, and, and subsequently, too. Um, you see lots of things where he will sort of graft a an unfinished older song onto a new idea and finish it off that way. Another day was like that. Yeah. Um, uh, Little Lamb Dragonfly was really two songs, one about a lamb, one about a dragonfly, and they happened to fit together nicely, so they did. The pound uh, is sinking. Yeah. And also a lot of the, you know, he occasionally will put out a medley kind of thing, like at the end of Red Rose Speedway, you know, Power Cut and all those. Um, these are songs that are, it's, it's a different move um, where instead of taking a piece of an unfinished song and finishing another unfinishing song with it, unfinished song, what he's doing here is just taking a bunch of unfinished songs and making them into a medley, like on side two of Abbey Road. I say side two because I'm old enough to remember LPs, but (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, But, you know, with the medley on Red Rose Speedway, it's kind of interesting because he doesn't just leave it as, okay, I'm sticking a bunch of unfinished songs together, which, by the way, is pretty much the way he described it. But if you listen to the song or to the medley, you hear that at the end, he begins bringing back themes from the earlier songs in the medley at, at the, at the very end. And, you know, that's a, you know, that's something a classical composer would do. You know, it's, it's a very compositional move and it makes it into more than just a bunch of bits stuck together. It makes it into some sort of an overall composition even though the individual sections are fundamentally unrelated yep uh it's got a very it's, it's very close to almost like what progressive rock artists do when they get bits and pieces and and sort of like meld them together like uh yes we'll do it and king crimson would do it and they would have little bits where they would stick them together, but there would be they would keep coming back to an overall theme, or eventually they would come back. To, they'd have these little themes that appear here and there and everywhere, which is, like I said, very much a, a classical thing. And so, um, what else was there about it? Uh, we were saying before we started recording. One of my favourite bits about the book is uh, the fact that. I've said before that I have a problem with a lot of books about the solo Beatles where you'll buy a book about one of the solo Beatles and the first half to three quarters of the book, I might be exaggerating here, but the majority of it 
would be about the Beatles, that 10, 12-year period, well, from mid, mid to late 50s until 1970, there. And then this little bit there will be all about the following so many years of solo career, which, which, like I said, was almost like bullet point working. Whereas your book, it's not looking at the Beatles; it's looking at them as a so as a solo artist and zoning in on that, which I think is really important because this guy has been solo for over fifty years. Essentially, been away from the Beatles for over fifty years, mm. so it's it's actually given a lot more respect to that 50 years so that people can look there and go, well, actually he has done this, 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 and this. And when you look in this first book, my God, this guy is so busy doing so many things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why we did it that way. And um, I, I don't know if I, if we, if we mentioned my co-author, Adrian Sinclair, I, yeah. I, I don't know. You, you might've mentioned it in the opening that you co-wrote yeah. it with Adrian. Yes. Yeah. You know, Adrian, this was Adrian's idea originally, this book. Um, and what he wanted to do at the start was something similar to Mark Lewison's Beatles recording sessions, but with Paul stuff. And he asked me, you know, would if if I do the studio stuff, would you be interested in just doing the, you know, some sort of a wraparound chapter for each album of what was going on in Paul's life at the time, you know? And but we both, you know, he was doing an awful lot of research into the songs and into what Paul was doing, and I was doing some of that too. We were both doing interviews, and. A number of things happened. One of them uh, was the the turning point for Adrian is we were interviewing Denny Sywell, Paul's the drummer in Wings, and also studio drummer on Ram. Nice guy. Uh, yeah, he's a great guy. Um, and I interviewed him first, and then Adrian interviewed him the, the second of the four or five times that we interviewed him. And, and, and he did all the rest of the interviews because during that talk – Denny said, um, by the way, I used to keep a, uh, you know, a log of, of my sessions and my wife used to keep a diary. Um, would you be interested in that? Like, like we might say no, you know, and, and that was absolutely invaluable. I mean, I mentioned before with Sunday, you know, bloody Sunday, uh, that uh, that it was his diary that established, you know, for us where Paul was. And uh, and that went all the way through because we knew pretty much everything he and Wings were doing every day of, of that period, what they recorded in the studio, you know, how it went, stuff like that. Because, you know, I mean, not a lot of detail about how it went in the diary, but talking to Denny, that, that was helpful. We talked to engineers, you know, anyone we could find who was around. Um, but we really felt, as you say, that, you know, so many biographies of Paul McCartney are, you know, 70% his life through the Beatles. And then the last 30% is just a little synopsis of that 50 year plus yeah. solo career. And we felt that, you know, this isn't doing the solo career justice. And the Beatles story at this point has been told you know quite a lot and we're still waiting for the next two volumes of mark lewison's book um and you know mark i should say we're 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 both good friends of his and he at one point was visiting 
and basically sat me down and said, look, I know you want to do a sessionography kind of thing, but you know what's really needed is a biography, a full detailed biography. And I thought, well, you know, you're probably right. I know you're right. And Adrian and I began talking about it. And uh, I'm not sure if this was before or after the the Denny offer of the diaries, but somehow it all kind of came together. So we did an outline, met with an agent, and and the rest is history, as it as it, as it were. But um, you know, Mark encouraged us in that, and uh, it's it's kind of amusing now that in in a way, you know, it, it's. It's impossible to be a Beatles writer now and not be influenced by the work that Mark has done, you know. And so it's been kind of amusing to us that, you know, one of the reviews of the book begins, uh, this book is entirely Mark Lewison's fault. And, you know, and, and the guy who wrote it didn't know half of it, half of it, you know. No. Uh, but what he meant was, you know, because Mark has been detailing the Beatles in, in that kind of granular, uh, you know, detail uh, that this is what we're doing with McCartney. And you can blame Mark for that. Uh, the New York times when they reviewed it wrote that we out Lewis and Lewis. And so, um, you know, it's, it's been kind of amusing. I mean, to, but, but to me, this is how a book should be, you know, and it's how I would do it if it was about a classical composer, but, Paul is a rock composer, and I'm not sure I make the distinction that perhaps a lot of people in the classical music world would want me to make. You know, Paul didn't learn how to read and write notes, but he is an incredibly musical person. And intuitively, he just knows how to, you know, first of all, as a melodist, you just don't run into that many people with that gift that he has, but also structurally. I mean, I was writing today about Junior's Farm. Junior's Farm is, you know, it's not the most amazing song that Paul ever did, but just looking at the way he structured it, you know, and that's one thing that I've got from from doing this book is looking closely at a lot of the songs that I just sort of knew as songs. I, I, you know, didn't really focus on that closely, but looking at them and looking at how they came together, you know, through the studio documentation and, you know, who overdubbed what it's fascinating. You know, it's really just incredible. It's like looking over a classical composer's shoulder as he decides to, you know, write this section this way and that section that way and put them together you know so so i'm learning a, a ton from this this experience was um which one was it where you were saying in the book um was it no it wasn't junie's farm it was high 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 where they were saying that there were didn't they end up doing like 12 guitar overdubs for it in total and then that must have they must have then sort of like pieced it together almost like a jigsaw essentially to pick what was which guitar was right for which section yeah. Well, high, high, high was like a r- real problem for them because they did hundreds of takes. Um, yeah. It started out as you know, they had a, a, a live recording from the 1972 European tour, and they really wanted to put that out. Uh, they had like five live recordings of it, and they chose one and said, yeah, this is the one. We'll put this out. And then Paul listened to it and said, no, I, no, no, we can do it a bit better. So they started off overdubbing 
onto the live recording to try to just fix little things that Paul thought could be better or whatever. And they did that for, you know, a couple of sessions. And then he said, well, let's just start it all new, you know, in the studio. And they changed it from the live version as a shuffle beat and the studio version, he decided, okay, the, the shuffle beat isn't going to work for us in here for some reason let's just make it a more straightforward beat so now you have basically two versions of high 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 especially now that the um you know live wings live in europe has come out now that is officially a released track so you have two very different ways of playing high 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 both available publicly um but you know he, he they just they just kept, you know, adding and overdubbing and starting afresh and overdubbing again. And, and uh, you know, the band and the engineers were sort of driven crazy by it. But this is the other thing about Paul. He's a perfectionist, yeah. you know, and he wants it the way he wants it. And he has a vision in his head and he'll just keep going until he gets there, you know. It's one of the things interesting that Ringo said in the, you know, in, in the lawsuit of, you know, when Paul had to sue the others to get out of Apple and, you know, out of the business partnership, um, Ringo said something like, you know, with one thing about Paul is he'll go on and on until he gets his own way. But <laughs> is that way with his own music? You know, it's, it's just a personality trait. You know, he's focused, let's say. But he would do the same thing again eventually. He would do it over and over again throughout his career. He would start a song in a certain way. And only when he felt that the song was exactly right, would he stop. And another case in point, which you'll get to eventually, will be with a song like uh, Take It Away, which started initially as almost like a reggae-styled song. And it changed so much arrangement-wise over the time that... It was perfect when it came out. He, he he got it to that stage where it was like, it's almost like there's a thing in his head where it tells him where it's where it's absolutely what he wants it to be, mm-hmm. and the change in that song. And he's 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 always done that throughout his career. He's always kept at it with different versions. I mean, that's why there are so many different versions of Beatles songs and alternative takes is because mm-hmm. they're trying to get that one take that's absolutely right to their ears. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's very focused in that way. And yet contrasting that, he has an insecure side. You know, again, this is a, the him and me, you know, in a way, the him is the guy who's put out these records. And yeah, I stand behind these records. These records are great, blah, blah, blah. Yet at one point, uh, he was having a really sort of down day. And it happened to be a day when um, he was going to be playing on top of the pops. He was playing, they were going to do my love and the rest of the band was late and he was getting depressed. And there were two journalists there uh, interviewing him and he's saying this, you know, really kind of down on himself stuff. Like, you know, I mean, here he's, he's at this point, recorded through Red Rose Speedway and, you know, and my love was the current single. So, and he's saying, you know, I, I don't think I've yet done the album that I can do. In fact, I I don't really like anything that I've done, you know, and 
I know that I can do a really great album and I haven't done it yet. So there's that side of him too. That's the, that's like the, the ultra self-critical side that in a way drives something like the high, 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 you know, to keep going until he's got what he has in mind. But there's also this thing inside him that, you know, wants to do something better than he's done. You know, he may be happy with it once he's done it, but then when he steps back, he'll say, well, it's okay, but I can do more. I can do better. You know, he felt, he said that he felt that way about Revolver too. He he felt that Revolver was entirely out of tune, which we've all heard Revolver. It's not out of tune. No. You know, yeah. but he just has these uh, these moments of 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 self criticism or self doubt, and that, in a way, too, is you know what drives him to be the perfectionist that he is. But it also explains moments like when the uh, when they did the the reissue of Red Rose Speedway, he was surprised in a way about how it how it was received because originally he perceived Red Rose Speedway. I think because people had basically said this to him or around him, they, they'd seen Red Rose Speedway this way. And it's almost like his opinion of that album and those sessions was shaped by what people who criticised actually said about it at the time. And then when it came out as the deluxe edition, there was this big, like, it's amazing the amount of people that suddenly realised, as I'd always thought, that it was a really good album. Because I'd yeah. always liked that album. Yeah. You know, I think it would have been a totally different story if they had released the double album that he meant it to be. Yeah. You know, the double album was vastly different, not just that there was twice as much of it, but the fact that, you know, Denny had a couple of songs on it and vote and a couple of vocals. Uh, Linda had Seaside Woman on it originally. Yeah. Uh, it was meant to show Wings as a band. And EMI said, yeah, that's great, but we want to sell a Paul McCartney album. We don't really care about, you know, the band. So it got sort of cut back to, you know, Denny's songs were gone. Seaside Woman was gone. It became really a Paul McCartney focused album. And and the rest of Wings was a little depressed about that too, because, you know, this was, this was part of the, the effort to show that Wings really was a band, not just backing guys, which in a way they also were, you know, it's a very difficult position. You know, you could be a great drummer like Denny Sywell and a very, you know, experienced uh, player like Denny or, uh, you know, Hugh. Uh, but if you're in a band with Paul McCartney, that sort of changes the geography a bit in, in terms of how critics will perceive it, how the record company will perceive it. Uh, and, and Paul, you know, with the other players really did try to fight against that to a, a big degree. You know, eventually he just sort of gave up on that and, and realized that Wings was the backing group. And this is another thing that Denny is, was kind of weird about, you know, when they came back from doing Band on the Run, he gave interviews where he said, now here at, at this point, Wings is just Paul, Linda and Denny. And Wings yeah. says, uh, and, and Denny says, um, well, you know, this is really Paul and Linda's album. I'm just there as a utility guy. 
you know, it's kind of, you know, I, I, I don't understand the way he thinks of himself a lot of the time. You know, he had a song on that album yeah. that he, sang. you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's, they're all complicated. It's, it's a, it's a great bunch to write a book about, gotta say. Tis. But at the same time as well, you so you've got that going throughout the narrative and the descriptions of what's got being recorded and the sessions, but you've you've also got these, I like it where you've got these little bits of descriptions of uh things like where you have songs that are known under a certain title, and then you will explain that that will eventually be be changed and that will become this song. Right. And you've got all these little almost foot you got these footnotes all over the place that give more detail here and there almost yeah. almost like a prophecy of this is what it is now but it's going to be this eventually well that was because uh we decided that we wanted to write the book in sort of in the same way as mark Lewison wrote Tune In and um Chip Mattinger wrote Leninology which is uh, lack of foreknowledge is is the way you know they put it, which is that we're writing this book as if we don't know what is going to happen. We're writing it in the moment. We're following the events as they are. Now, with the Beatles and with John Lennon, that's comparatively easy to do because the Beatles did not leave tons of leftovers in the can in the studio and neither did john but paul did you know paul recorded a ton of stuff for ram uh some of which ended up on red row speedway some of which came out you know was as late as the 2000s um so with him it's very difficult to not be able to look ahead and say this is what became of this track that he recorded um but Having agreed to do it this way, we felt bound by that. But so I proposed using the footnotes as a way of getting into a different timeline. The footnotes are the reality as we know it now. So I was able to say in the footnotes sometimes what would eventually become of something. But in the text itself, it's you're reading it as it's happening and you don't necessarily know. So if something is called mood music, we're going to call it mood music, even though really everybody knows it as Bridge on the River Suite. So what we did in the studio entries is we would put, you know, uh, original title of Bridge Over the River Suite or something like that. And, And sometimes in the footnotes, uh, I might say what eventually happened to it, but even there, you know, we try not to do too much of this, what eventually happened to it, because, because then you're really not doing the lack of foreknowledge, you know? So I use that in the footnotes a lot of the time to talk about other things. Like for instance, when, uh, uh, Hugh McCracken is called originally, Uh, to record on Ram and isn't available because he's in Florida recording with Aretha Franklin. Franklin. I was able to use the footnote to say, you know, what he was recording, what out, what the name of the album eventually was and when it was released. So you get the story filled out in the footnote, but in the text, you're sort of doing it without the foreknowledge. You can, you can have it either way. A lot of people don't read footnotes. I can't think why, but you know, there it is. 
Mm-hmm. Were, were you able to get all of Hughes, uh, any of Hughes' documentation as well? Because I, I, I would have thought that him being a session player as well, he would have had a lot of diary or records of what he was up to as well. Yeah, but you know, since he's um, no longer Aston with Ray. us, we we um, weren't able really to um, to get in contact with anyone who might have those things, and uh, so in his case, we had to rely on published interviews and and things like that. And he was, you know, he was very plain spoken. I mean, he was disappointed with something he said so, and when he was happy with something he said so, you know, and he has a, an interesting role in this book, you know, um, <clears throat> his solo on My Love is like, it's one of the great solos in McCartney singles, and uh, it almost didn't happen because Paul likes people to play what he wants them to play. He wants to think of the solo and have the person in the band execute it, which goes against that idea of we're really a band because if we're really a band, then everybody in the band has musical input. And, um, you know, with, with my love, I think they had already done 13 takes and Hugh wasn't happy with the solo he was asked to play and said to Henry. Paul, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Henry. Yep. Yep. Uh, guitar players i know (laughs) so uh you know and he went to paul and said let me just let me give it a try and you know we we have interviews from the time where paul is saying you know i'm thinking oh no i want it this way okay i'll let him do it and he lets him do it just for one take and they're playing it live with orchestra so you know it was just sort of magic that it came out as well as it did and paul loved it and Henry was thrilled that he got one of his ideas on the disc and the record came out and the critics loved it. So, but then it happened again with no words, Denny's song on band on the run and uh, Henry wanted to play a solo he had in mind and Paul just wasn't having it. And that's when Henry quit. So mm-hmm. Yeah, band dynamics. It's another thing that, you know, we get into a lot in the book, not not overtly saying, you know, here are some aspects of band dynamics, but but just looking at, at the relationships and who says what to who in the studio and who does what and what the response is. It's uh it's it's just sort of a fascinating dynamic, just psychologically. Yeah, I mean, you've even got um, uh, documentation of Henry being paid as well on one of them in there as well, which is which which I I, I almost did a double take when I saw it. And I thought, oh, oh, how did you get hold of that? All this documentation you've got hold of is incredible. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, it's out there if you um, know where to find it, and and I'm sure there's tons of stuff we never did find. So. Um, you know, we're still looking for things for volume two and forward. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping we'll be as lucky as we were with volume one, because we, we did find an awful lot of really interesting stuff. And it, 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 it helped us tell a story that was, you know, it, everyone knows the outlines of Paul's career, but a lot of the details have never really been gone into. And we were able to do that. And that's what we aimed to do. So, yeah, worked out. 
Well, I'm, I'm guessing that Volume 1 was helped a lot by, we've already mentioned, by Denny Sywell, because um, he was, many people might not know, but he was really helpful when Paul was putting together the Wingspan uh, set, or what happened then as well, because if, if you look, a lot of the time you'll see in the book, there's a lot of the Wingspan book when it came out. I mean, it's, it's a flawed project, Wingspan, in some ways, but where it works... There's little bits where there's pictures that they've got hold of and details that they've got hold of through, like you, you said, all this incredible wealth of information that Denny and his wife, Micheline, have been able to keep hold of for all these years and have still got. Yeah, I, I don't really know what he contributed to Wingspan. Um are there things credited to him in there? I, I don't remember. Um, because the, talking to him, he kind of indicated that he didn't really do very much on that. In a way, hmm. Wingspan was kind of a make good project for Paul. Um, Denny and Jeff Britton and other people were paid big consulting fees, partly as a way of making up for what Paul recognized was kind of an inequitable uh, way of, well, during their time with Wings, for instance, Denny felt that that they weren't as well paid as they should have. Because um, when, when he joined, the deal was, you know, you're all going to be co-owners of this band. We're all going to profit from the recordings. We're all going to get money from the tours. But Paul's money was also tied up in Apple at the time. Yes. And there was only a certain amount that he was going to pay out of his own pocket. And he was paying for, you know, the tour buses and touring equipment and everything else that was going on that was coming right out of Paul's own, you know, cash. Um, everything was going into Apple. The, the, the record royalties were going into Apple. So all of those promises that he had made when he formed wings, he was actually unable to keep and he had put them on a 70 pound a week retainer. Um, and Denny Sywell in particular, but Henry too, uh, also, they felt that, you know, we're, we're not actually co-owners of this band. And in fact, you know, we're struggling to make ends meet. Denny would keep flying back to the States. Anytime Paul gave them a week off, he would fly back to New York to do some session work because he was a top flight session guy. He was yep. paid triple rate. And, uh, you know, so he would come back here to make some money to pay off his Amex bill is the way he put it. Um, and then go back to England. So, so the wingspan fees were sort of Paul's recognition that, you know what, um, they felt hard done by, and I don't disagree with them totally. So I'm going to hire them as consultants for wingspan, but I don't think he really asked them to do that much consulting. It was just kind of a way of, of making that better. You know, you know, Paul gets criticized a lot for being, you know, cheap or whatever. But, you know, sometimes there are, there are things like this that are, are not widely known. You know, he'll try to make things good when he can. You know, not all the time. I mean, there are still there are various people with all kinds of, you know, stories and grudges about this and that. But but in these cases, in the case of Danny and Jeff Britton and other, I guess, other Wings players, um, he did 
he did make an effort to contact them and you know pay them a, a very substantial fee that would make up for whatever they felt was unjust about their time in wings financially. Yep. Um, and also just in passing, um, you have experience as well of actually, as well of actually speaking with Paul as in, in, in interviewing um, him as well in, you know, for, for newspapers and magazines. Um, I would have thought that, I mean, um, yeah, you know, I, I just do this as a bit, but you know, as, as podcasts. But I would have thought that when you're interviewing Paul, are you are you looking at areas specifically to try and get almost like new little tidbits of information, essentially? Because I think a lot of the time when people interview Paul, it's almost like the same old, same old questions, which is why you get the same anecdotes. Right. So when you're doing it, are you are you trying to get new information each time? Well, yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, that that's a good way to put it. Because uh, when I've interviewed him, first of all, it's usually been about a particular project. So, for instance, you know, Memory Almost Full. We're obviously going to be talking mostly about Memory Almost Full, but you know, I'll usually try and ask some other historical questions and you know, basically, even before getting involved with this book, I had read hundreds and hundreds of McCartney interviews and had them in my collection. And, you know, uh, so I was determined, for instance, not to give him any opportunity to tell me that he dreamed yesterday, or <laughs> that he went vegetarian because of the gambling lambs, or, you know, I mean, there's most people who are really into McCartney have sort of lists of his set piece stories. And as an interviewer, I wanted to avoid them. And, and in fact, um, once when I was still at the Times, I got a call from someone at uh, one of the television stations here who was going to be traveling down to, I guess, Charlotte to interview Paul. So this would have been 93. Um, and she said, you know, can you give me any pointers? And I said, well, here's the thing, you know, just get your hands on as many of his interviews as you can. And try not to ask him anything that will have him tell you the same things. I mean, this is, you would think is sort of basic journalism, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I said to her, you know, we all have his stories like, you know, numbered, you know, like number 623, I dreamed yesterday, you know, uh, you know, getting better all the time. And John said, it can't get much worse. You know, all the stories, you know? Yeah. So what she did is she went to him and said, so I called Alan Cozen at the Times and I said, you know, I asked him for some tips and he said that you have all these set pieces and that all of your fans have them all numbered. So you have to not tell me those ones that they have numbered. And I said, well, <laughs> wait a minute. Did you, you told them that like, that I said that like by name, you said me. <laughs> and she said, yeah. And I said, well, I, I really think the least you can do is give me all the outtakes from your interview footage. <laughs> she wouldn't do it. But, you know, <laughs> this is how we get this stuff, you see. But, um, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you know, when I was at the Times uh, as well, um, towards the end of my time there, I, other people were interviewing him as well. And um, we had a music reporter named Dan Waken who 
interviewed him about his ballet that he was doing at the New York City Ballet. And he asked something about, you know, do you have any idea of, uh, you know, what the plot is for this, you know, for the music you've written? And Dan said to me, you know, he said a very peculiar thing. He said, I haven't come up with a story for that answer yet. And I thought, well, hmm, that's interesting. Because, you know, when I interviewed him, I would I would ask questions and, you know, he answered them and they were not the set piece answers. Um, and they were very fresh. And I thought they were actually very frank. You know, I asked him, for instance, about the fact that, you know, when they were in the Beatles, they had this policy about not putting the singles on the albums. And yet, as a solo artist, he was putting out, um, you know, CD singles in five different versions available only in Japan, each version having three B-sides that were otherwise unavailable. So that if you were an American collector, you had to go get all these Japanese singles to get all of his stuff. And he said, well, you know, you have to understand that when... Uh, we were in the Beatles, there were four of us. And if we didn't like an idea, we could just say, um, you know, and he used a, an epithet <laughs> ending in you to uh, the record company guy. And he said, but you know, I'm not the Beatles. I have to think very carefully if an, if an A&R guy or a promotion guy comes to me and says, we think this would be a really good idea. I have to think very carefully before I say no. And I have to consider what they want to do. So it's different from when I was in the Beatles. Now, that kind of answer, is, is I was absolutely not expecting from him yeah. because it doesn't fit into the constructed him persona of you know Paul McCartney superstar it was i thought unusually frank and uh i i was kind of surprised but you know the interviews were were really that way and and i really enjoyed doing them but you know it's he's he's just a trip to interview because you walk in the room and he makes you feel as if you're old pals. You're you go way back. You may never have met him before, but he makes you feel like you go way back. And you know, you feel you've met him before in a way because you know so much about him and or, or you know, the him him, <laughs> not the me him necessarily. Yeah. Um, but he he completely makes you comfortable unless there's something about you he doesn't like. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen some combative interviews with him too. Um, but, uh, you know, he, we've always had a, a pretty friendly time and I'm, I'm sorry that he didn't want to talk for the book, but with Paul, uh, you know, he doesn't mind talking to journalists and talking to journalists really is also helping him promote whatever he's got on at the moment. But talking to a biographer is a completely different thing. Um, and he just didn't want to participate in that. But he also didn't stop anyone from talking to us. And a lot of people went to him, you know, since we're interviewing people in his orbit, people he works with or worked with. People went to him and said, do you mind if I talk to these guys? And he said, no, every time. So, you know, people came and, and felt free to talk to us. So that, that was, you know, we're, we're glad that he didn't do anything to obstruct us. Um, we're hoping that he reads the book and says, yeah, you know, these guys take me seriously and treat my work with respect. And I should talk to them for volume two.
<laughs> we'll see but if that happens. He actually contacted you once, didn't he? I think when you did, uh, did didn't you do a, a review of one of his classical pieces? Was it right? Which Liverpool one? Oratorio. Liverpool Oratorio. And he actually contacted you personally and, and talked to you about it and how happy he was with the um, and gave you some responses to what you'd actually said in the review. Well, I was, you know, it was at a, a press conference um, in New York and he saw me in the audience and, you know, he obviously, this was, we had only had one interview before and I was once at a, before that was at a small round table with maybe half a dozen journalists. So he'd only ever seen me twice and he spotted me in the audience. You know, I'm not sure I would recognize, I'd recognize him, obviously, but I'm not sure I'd recognize <laughs> someone I had just seen twice when I'm interviewed by hundreds of people a year, you know. Um, but he did his press conference and he went off stage and he told, it was at, at uh, Carnegie Hall, small hall, while recital hall, and he told one of Carnegie's publicists, I saw Alan Cozen out there, I'd like to have a chat with him. And they came up to me and said, you know, um, Paul wants to see you. So they brought me around and he just said, you know, uh, you gave you gave that piece a chance. And I wanted to thank you for that, because most of my classical colleagues did not give it a chance. You know, it was very negatively reviewed. And you know what? I've listened to the piece recently and I still like it because let's face it. The Liverpool Oratorio is fundamentally expanded song forms. And if there's one thing Paul McCartney can do, it's a song form, right? Yeah. You know, plus he had, you know, this long violin solo that I I may I commented in in the review. Uh you know, he might want to try a concerto as well, because that was actually pretty good. And it turned out, you know, with when I interviewed him in 2007 about memory almost full he said well you know um i've got to go because i'm uh, writing a guitar concerto and i'm meeting with the guitarist who was carlos bonell um <laughs> british guitarist and who i knew and uh you know so we're just going over some stuff and that that concerto has never come out i'd love to hear it you know if he hasn't finished it i wish he would <laughs> Well, the the yeah, you know, I'm I'm just going to say that there is a famous quote from from Bob Dylan who says that he actually thinks that McCartney is one of the one of the greatest melodists that he that he's ever known. Uh, sure. So I mean, that's high praise indeed, really, from Bob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and he is one of the greatest melodists, you know, of our time, certainly, maybe of all time. You know, listen to something like Backseat of My Car, you know, it's, it's uh, listen to almost anything of his, you know, he he knows how to sort of pluck a tune from out of the air and make it sound like the most natural thing there is, even though it's completely fresh and, you know, undeniably his, you know, it's got his thumbprint on it. So, Yeah. But also at the same time, um, I was listening to an interview with completely different. I was listening to an interview the other day that the the guys from Soda Jerker did with uh, with Michael Penn, and Michael Penn was saying that something that he does himself, and and McCartney does this a lot, where he won't go for what would what sounds like the natural note, essentially that you'd pick out of there. And Michael Penn was saying that sometimes you'll play it on an instrument and you'll hear an harmonic or, or something on the instrument 
that's not natural, but they'll pick up on that. And I think Paul does that a lot where he'll be he'll be playing and he'll 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 pluck out a note that isn't natural from that chord, but it works perfectly in that sequence and in that melody. Yeah, yeah, he does that a lot. Um, he'll throw in a chord that you don't expect or will modulate, you know, into a different key or, uh, um, you know, the fact that he never learned music theory and never learned to read and write music is, is, is so inconsequential compared with what he's achieved. I mean, it, in fact, it's so inconsequential compared with what he's achieved that there are times when I think, I wonder if he's faking that whole thing about not being able to read and write music because, you know, but I don't think he is, you know, I mean, he says things sometimes that kind of bring, bring home the fact that that's true. Like when, when he says that he doesn't want to learn to read and write music because he's afraid that he'll subconsciously plagiarize something. And the example he gives is somewhere from Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story. Uh, And he'll say, you know, I found out that, um, you know, that melody is actually from uh, Beethoven's second piano concerto. And I don't want to be in a position where I'm, you know, accidentally doing that. But the thing is, Bernstein did it. It it wasn't accidental. He he knew totally what he was doing. And it was exactly the same as when Paul sat down to write, I'm down, you know, I'm down. Basically you could say he's subconsciously plagiarizing little Richard. He's not really plagiarizing little Richard, but he's writing a song that had all the little Richard moves. And what was it written for? It was written to become the Beatles set closer instead of long, tall Sally. So, you know, I think if he were to think of it that way, Instead of, you know, I might I might accidentally quote another composer's work. Um, I think he might feel more comfortable, although, you know, at this point at 80, is he going to start learning all that stuff? Probably not. But, you know, he he does know a lot of classical music um, when he's in New York, which is, you know, quite a lot. Um, he pops into Carnegie Hall all the time. And I used to know an usher there and he would tell me what Paul came for. He came for the Britain War Requiem. He came for, you know, he comes for some pretty sophisticated stuff, you know, and he knows it. So I think he doesn't like to admit that he knows it because it it makes him feel like maybe, um, you know, people will think I'm not really a rock and roller if I admit to knowing all this classical stuff. But, you know, whatever it takes, it doesn't matter. You know, I I feel comfortable with um, the fact that he knows what he's doing when he's writing something, whether it's a classical piece or or a, a pop piece. And with classical pieces, he also has technical help from, you know, composers carl davis in the case of the oratorio a few other people and in the case of other pieces um i like the fact that he's taken the classical stuff seriously and i i I wish he would continue doing it um you know some pieces i've liked more than others you know but um you know you just have to keep doing it and uh and he has a a nice little body of classical stuff that uh, you know could use some expansion because it would also make yeah. volume four probably, you know, much more varied if we have that to um, throw in along with the rock stuff. 
And by then we'll also be dealing with his paintings and his kids' books and yeah. God knows what, because we want to cover his entire creative life. That's that's really the point. Well, I'm, I'm um, you, you're just making me think now of the work that he does that's not so well known. And I'm looking forward to, I mean, this is far into the future, this, but when you when you go into the work that he's done with youth, the fireman for the fireman etc that that will be really fascinating to listen right. to yeah anyway wow we've spoken a lot longer about the book than was originally intended but it was so much fun speaking to you about it um in fact i'll i'll steal a question from ed chen that he's going to ask you which is how you came about the structure for the book and and how it was worked out and and who and sort of um was it a two-person thing all the way through, or did one of you, or did you sort of like structure it, or did, or did you work out how you were going to do it? How did that well, work out? Well, you know, the structure is really very easy. It's just completely chronological. Um, it doesn't get easier than that. Um, the only place where there was any difficulty structurally is figuring out how to deal with the stuff before November 1969 or October 69 when the book opens and the Beatles have broken up and Paul is up in Scotland. We have to explain what brought us to this pass. And that means getting into the whole Alan Klein thing and, you know, the attempt to buy NEMS and Northern Songs and everything that was going on with the Beatles in 1969. So that meant backtracking after establishing October 69 in the first chapter. Um, but that was the only time that any kind of decision about where to put things was made. You know, we just sort of continue along chronologically when he walks into the recording studio, that becomes one of those studio entries, which has a, a heading of its own. And then when the session is done, we're back into sort of regular life and it continues until the next session uh, or tour or whatever it is. So structurally was no, was, wasn't difficult um, in terms of what we both did um, in the crudest terms, Adrian was the principal researcher and I was the principal writer, but, you know, I have a huge library of Beatles and McCartney stuff sitting here, um, which we've utilized. Adrian has the British Museum, British Library. <laughs> um, we both did interviewing. Adrian did the lion's share of the interviewing. I did many fewer than he did, but um, you know, we we both split things. I mean, he'd find someone in the US and said, Can you give this person a call? So I would do that. Um and then there were certain chapters that Adrian wanted to write. So he wrote those. And then sort of I would, we would each edit each other's chapters in a way, you know, he would add things to mine or take things out that he thought were excessive. Or if I got, you know, too much into the weeds of musical analysis, uh, that kind of thing. And then he'd write a chapter and I would sort of, you know, make it conform with, basically U.S. grammatical rules because it's an American publisher. Um, there was one, one place where he felt strongly and I had to give in about the difference between U.S. and U.K. grammar. Um, in the U.S., we consider a corporate entity as a singular 
being. So we would say EMI is releasing an album. You guys would say EMI are releasing an album because yeah. you know it's just a, a philosophical difference. To you, a corporation is still a bunch of people, right? To yeah. us, it's a monolith. <laughs> so what bothered Adrian was saying, you know, Wings is going on tour. He said, no, 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 Wings are going on tour. <laughs> so he says, you wouldn't say the Beatles is, would you? He says, well, no, but the Beatles is plural. Well, Wings is plural. You know, <laughs> so I finally gave in on that. You know, I, I, we sent a note to our editor and said, okay, we're, we're using American grammatical rules, except for this one thing. Do you mind? Will, will that be okay with you? Um, because we didn't want copy editors undoing everything we were doing once I'd given in on this. So, um, but basically we both read each other's chapters. We both, you know, sort of worked to make it uh, a, a kind of unified style and, uh, you know, but so we we both had our hands on all aspects of doing the book. Another area of Adrian's was was photos. I didn't really get that involved in that, other than that, you know, he'd show me a bunch of photos and say, what do you think? What do you like? Um, but, you know, he contacted the photographers and did all of that stuff and found, you know, there's a lot of rare photos in that book that haven't been seen before. Um, those are things he found. So, so that was another aspect of of his, you know. And Adrian is a, uh, a a documentary producer and editor, yeah. And so he thinks in very visual and almost cinematic terms, which sort of helped me a lot because I don't necessarily always write in a cinematic way, but I, but with Adrian sitting, you know, theoretically at my side, although he's halfway across the world, you know, knowing he's going to be reading it, I, you know, it made me sort of think more carefully about trying to make it, you know, visual, you know, which is probably a good thing because you read a book, you want to be, you don't, you're not just reading a stream of, text you want to be able to see it happening before your eyes so so you know adrian adrian was very important in that in that end of it too so i think that pretty much describes how we divided stuff that's good so anyway so how do so changing it completely and going to uh you know what this this show is mainly about most of the time how how did you actually get into the world of podcasting with the uh, with things we said today? Right. Um, well, with that, you know, when my not my last book, but a couple of books ago, um, I did another book for the Times, which was an ebook called yeah. "Got That Something: How the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Changed Everything." Yeah. <laughs> and when I was doing the promotion for that, some of it was podcasts. And one of the podcasts was Things We Said Today, which at the time was Ken Michaels and Steve Marinucci, just. Yep. And then shortly after that, they said, you know, would how would you feel about sort of joining the cast? And I said, Well, um, you know, I don't. I haven't really done this, but sure, you know, and we began doing it. And then um, Al Sussman also joined. Um, and then Steve and Al Sussman left and we got Darren DeVivo, who's a, a radio guy from New York. And uh, 
Yeah, so that's how I got involved in it, basically by being a guest first, <laughs> and then you know doing that. And uh, I also have done a lot of uh, things with Richard Buskin's various podcasts. Um, they keep changing names. It was Buskin with the Beatles. It was the Beatles Naked. It was Swinging Through the Sixties. I think I've been in all those incarnations, um, and that's just because you know we're pals. And when he had a show where he needed a guest. Um, I'd go on, but I was on so frequently that I was, you know, for a while and almost, almost a regular cast member, you know, if they were talking about the Beatles or in some cases, uh, we did one about pet sounds at the beach boys. Um, yeah. So, you know, and they're, they're, those are two very different podcasts, you know, Richard is a lot more irreverent yeah. than, than Ken, for instance, although Ken's loosened up a lot. Ken's loosened up a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, so now we've been doing it. We we just, just tonight, an hour before we started talking, we just finished, I think, episode 382 or 383. Wow. And I think I first went on there as a guest on like episode 68 or something. So I'm pretty sure that I joined well before episode 100. So I've been on it for most of them. Do you have a specific role or do do the three of you just just chat and uh, or, do you just come up with it on the, I'm not yeah. going to say that you, you must research what you're going to discuss of course. Sure, yeah. Um okay, we each take turns being host. Yep. <laughs> um and we all come up with ideas, but a lot of them sort of suggest themselves. You know, if if Apple is going to put out an archive edition of Revolver, we're going to spend at least one, in, in this case, I think two shows on Revolver. Um, someone puts out a book. Um, I mean, a few weeks ago, I was the guest on it because we talked about McCartney Legacy and, yeah. we, and Adrian was on that too. Um, but we have, you know, plenty of other people who, who write books or sometimes we we've had Denny Sywell on the show. We've had uh, Lawrence Juber. Um, we've had Patty Harrison. That was a treat. Um, we've, you know, actually before my time, they had uh, what's that guy who was, he was in the Beatles for about a week playing bass and then he got drafted. Um, he's one of those names that you sort of run into in a, in a, in a I forgot his name. Sorry. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'll, it'll come to me. Uh, but we try to get guests whenever we can. Um, but we also will come up with topics like, you know, okay, each choose 10 George Harrison tracks that you think are underrated or one George Harrison album you think is underrated or Paul or Ringo or, you know, whoever, uh, the show we just did was we each chose between five and 10 songs that the Beatles either in the group days or in the solo years gave away to other artists. And, you know, some of those songs, you know, people don't really think of all the time, like, you know, David Bromberg doing the the song he wrote with George called the Hold Up." Yep. you know, you don't hear that that much and people don't, I don't think it's on people's consciousness that much. So even though we don't play the music, which is kind of a frustration due to the digital millennium, whatever act, uh, 
you know, we feel that we can point people in the direction of things they can look up on Spotify or whatever. And um, so, you know, we try to come up with either someone to talk to or record to review or a theme of some kind to do with helping people navigate the back catalogs of these guys. Right. So what sort of research do you do for the show then leading up to it? Um, well, you know, obviously, depending what the topic is, if, if you know, we, we we have to read the books that we are going to talk to people about it or as much of them as we can, depending how far in advance we've scheduled the interview um, and come up with questions based on that, because we do it as sort of a round robin, you know, each ask a few questions and then on to the next guy. And then sometimes we'll have a second round. So we have to have questions. Um, if it's about the music, uh, you know, we'll look up what we can, if we feel that we don't, you know, that we need a refresher of some kind. Um, and uh, obviously listen to the music. If, if there are multiple versions or outtakes, I'll always listen to all of that. Uh, you know, just so that we can offer some depth so that it's not just us, you know, bloviating about, you know, a couple of tracks here and there. We want to give some information and we want to give some reason why we're expressing the opinions we're expressing you know, pretty much like I would do in a review. Um, so basically like that, you know, it's, it, don't know what else to say about it. it. It it just sort of, in a way, stands to reason. But um, you know, we only now we're doing them every two weeks instead of every week, so we have a little more time to do the prep. And I I, I always feel that when we have time, the more time we have to do the prep, the better the show ends up. You know, because because we have the background we feel we need, even if it isn't all expressed out loud. You know, you sort of know why you think the things you think and you, and you have the sort of confidence to stand behind it. Okay. So what sort of advice would you give to people if they wanted to do a podcast themselves? Hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, it varies. I mean, there's some technical advice I would give, which is get yourself a good microphone um, and a, a pair of headphones and uh, you know, be able to monitor, you know, we've, we've had some shows early on that just sounded not great, you know, uh, and, you know, make sure you turn off your phone. When we interviewed Peter Jackson, we did it. We interviewed Peter Jackson and he had said, you know, no time limit guys, anything you want to do. Cause he really is a big Beatles fan. Yeah. And he spoke to us for four hours. <laughs> I kept thinking, you know, we should let him go. But he, whenever I thought that he would start a new topic, you know, um, but someone, and I think it was someone working in his office who was just sort of monitoring the podcast, but wasn't on screen, I think had a phone on. And so you'd hear it ding every time there was an email. <laughs> You know, so I would recommend, you know, for people who want to do podcasts, you know, some of that technical stuff that you don't initially think of, you know, make a list about anything you find annoying in podcasts that you've heard and find ways around it. And one of them is making sure the phones are off or you go on your computer and you go into the settings and you turn off all system sounds. Mm 
so yeah. that if your computer gets an email, it doesn't ding. That's taken us a while to like get to, you know, I mean, now I think we're doing pretty well, but um, otherwise, you know, come up with a name that you feel people will remember. Um, our podcast is now video. Um, although there's also an audio version that, you know, just the soundtrack of the video that goes out and a lot of people um, still just listen to it on audio. Um, but if you can do video, it, you know, it's, I think it's sometimes helpful to see people, you know, um, or, you know, the stuff that, you know, Ken is always holding up the things he's having in his, you know, contests and things, or, or uh, you know, I can have my book sitting here uh, you know, on the screen. So um, I would recommend thinking about video podcasts because it does seem to be the way of the future. I completely resisted it when Ken wanted to do it, but now I'm really happy that we do it that way, except for one thing. Okay. I do the video editing. <laughs> Right. And, you know, I'm a pretty good audio editor. I mean, I'd always, you know, back in school, did electronic music and stuff like that. I know how to edit a tape or these days a waveform. I'm really good at it. Video is a lot harder. Um, yeah. You know, you make a cut, there's going to be a jump. You got to put it dissolve in there, something like that. So I would recommend, you know, for someone who wants to get into this, to think about getting a good program that is flexible to let you do, you know, what you want to do, make a, a professional looking or sounding product. Um, but otherwise, you know, have something to say. And if you're about to start a podcast, I would say, you know, map out, map out 10 or 15 weeks worth of topics before you even get started and then add to them as you're going on so that you don't run out because, you know, that's, that's one of the big sort of terrifying things, you know, what do you do from week to week? You know, we don't have that much planned in advance. Um, you know, we have things planned in advance if we know there are going to be particular releases that will, you know, schedule themselves. Yeah. But if there's nothing coming out and we have to come up with a topic like songs the Beatles gave away to other artists, you know, it takes some discussion between us. And usually we'll do that discussion, you know, after the podcast is over while we're still connected on Zoom. Um, we'll discuss possible ideas and then we'll take it to email and just email each other during the two-week period and hope that, you know, we come up with an idea far enough in advance that we can use most of the two weeks to do the prep. And if not, you know, we're not necessarily, people don't necessarily expect to hear us on Monday nights or something. So if we don't have it and we need a little more time to finish reading the book or doing the listening or whatever we need, we can schedule it on a different night, you know, especially now I'm not out reviewing. It used to be when, when I started this, I was still at the Times and I was out reviewing really most nights. Um, and it became very difficult if if we couldn't do the podcast on the night it was originally scheduled for. It, it didn't mean I was necessarily available the next night or the night after. So, but now you know, now I'm up in Maine, not reviewing concerts, and so I can pretty much do it any time, apart from that I should be writing volume two. Volume two. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah. Is there any other, anything you think I've left out since you also are an experienced podcaster? I, I don't know, but I would, I will tell you a story that you will, I think you'll find amusing. I don't know whether you know about this, but uh, I was speaking with Stu Arrowsmith, who does the uh, uh, Elvis Costello podcast, uh, Dangerous mm. Amusements. And we were doing a show and we were doing it over video. So he was able to, we were talking about, you know, the, the famous, uh, you know, rec- writing that he did with with Elvis Costello, that Paul McCartney did with Elvis Costello. And then I bought, I pulled out, because I've got it down there, the deluxe set of Flowers in the Dirt, which has got, you know, the, the demos on it. And then Stu can see me pulling it out and he says, oh, look, he says, that that's what, £150 worth of McCartney and Costello. And I'm there going, I'm glad we were on headphones and my other half can't hear you saying this. And then he says, oh, sorry, £25 will buy you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is and, that. You know, you're you're saying a lot of stuff on podcasts that, um, you know, you have to be sure that what you're saying, you don't mind anybody hearing. <laughs> And for anybody listening, my other half absolutely howled with laughter when I played that to her. She thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. People people sort of expect wives to really, you know, crack down on you about your, your collecting things and stuff. And mine doesn't, you know. So I don't know. And when, when um I can't remember what it was. It was some pricey thing was coming out. And and one of the other guys was saying, well, you know, so, you know, does your wife know you're, uh, you know, you're, you're getting this. And I said, well, all I need to do is say that something is coming out and she'll say, you should get that. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe, maybe women are generally speaking, getting a bad rap on this, um, on this collecting thing. That's true. And I was only doing it for the humor anyway, but without the video element, that joke would not have worked. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Those moments that are pure gold. Anyway, where can people find you and get hold of you, Alan? Um, easiest way to find me is on Facebook and there are two me's on Facebook. There's me and him. <laughs> no, there's um, just plain Alan <laughs> Cozen. And there's, I have another one called Alan Cozen remixed. That was really, that was actually started by my wife because she wanted to start a page for got that something, how the Beatles, I want to hold your hand changed everything. And yep. you need to have a profile to start a page from. And so, uh, so I decided to keep it and, and remixed would be my alter ego. And I suppose most, mostly Beatles stuff on that side. And the plain Alan Cozen one is more classical stuff when I was doing more of it anyway. Um, but, uh, also, um, you know, people, if people want to contact me about things we said today, things we said today has an email address for all three of us, okay. which is things we said today, radio show at gmail.com. So I don't know, weirdly Germanic long name, things we said today, radio show, all one word at gmail.com. But that was set up in the Steve Marinucci days. He set that one up. So um, we've never changed it. And then there's a fantastic website for the McCartney legacy as well, isn't there? Right. There is. I I think it's called just called McCartneyLegacy.com. Anyway, you can find pods like us on any streaming network and we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. 
Anyway, thank you everyone for listening and thank you, Alan, for speaking with me today. Thank you, Martin, for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Me too. So thank you, everybody, and hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us.